usually this happens. Usually before I get up and preach, I, I've got a lot of thoughts uh, going on in my mind. And uh, I was thinking, and I just want to say this for you all. This is for those who are in class. This is for everybody. I don't know everything. <laughs> I think that should go without. So I've said this before, before sermon, but I don't know everything. And I say this because we're going through something in class that is difficult. Uh, there, there are a lot of different views on how to interpret Revelation chapter 20. So if you haven't been in class, you're missing out. Uh, but it's a little late to join. <laughs> so, but man, as we, as we ponder uh, Scripture and the Word of God, there, there is, to be sure, some mystery still to it. Uh, God has revealed so much. He's revealed Himself through His Son. He's revealed so much to us. And there are things that we know, right? There are things we know about Him, but then there are still things that are lost to us and we don't fully understand. And I think of the Apostle Paul's words of, I, I see in a mirror dimly, right? The, the Apostle Paul even says, I don't, I don't fully understand. Uh, and so we too we should not have any sort of thought thinking we get this completely. Uh, we don't, right? And so that being said, before we get into the sermon, let's go in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, you are good and you alone are good. Lord, we're so thankful for your Son, your Son who revealed you, who revealed who you are in person, who revealed who you are in love, grace, and mercy. God, as we ponder your word, we, there, there are some things we don't fully understand, but we ask that you'd give us understanding and one day when we are in your fullness, we would just see you. Lord, we're so thankful, so thankful for your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. About to teach my class again. Let me flip over there. Now, if you didn't know, uh, chapter and verse divisions in our Bible, right here, they were added 1,500 years after the first text. Really, most of the New Testament was written. Now, do I think these verse divisions and chapter divisions are bad? Not necessarily. They help us. They help us navigate Scripture. They help us, you know, if I'm going to tell you a book, chapter, and verse, you can usually find it pretty easily because of these divisions. However, they do us a disservice when we read through and interpret Scripture, and here's why. Sometimes when we read chapters, we see the chapter number and we think, okay, this text stands alone. Sometimes when we see those verse numbers, we think, okay, this verse stands alone. I can just pluck it out of the context and use it for whatever I want and whatever ideology I have, whatever thoughts I have. I can use it to support whatever I think. That's an issue. Right? Because the thing is, they didn't have book, chapter, and verse to divide it all. And sometimes we fall into a trap of dividing it, thinking that these chapters stand alone, and we forget about the context. Uh, there's, there's this word, uh, I know some people won't like this word because they had a class over it, hermeneutics. And some people don't like hermeneutics because the class is sometimes a little frustrating. But as simply put, hermeneutics is just biblical interpretation. How do we interpret the Scripture? Right? And it deals with questions like, okay, uh, what is this passage? What comes before this passage and what comes after this passage? What is the context? And so when dealing and when reading Scripture and interpreting Scripture, we cannot forget 
the context because what comes before and what comes after influences what the text in the middle means. And so we've been going through the Gospel of John. And John himself, remember he says at the very, at the very end of his Gospel that he supposed if the works of Christ were all written, not, not even the world can contain the books that were to be written. And so John, just a, a small sliver of what we have in here in our Bible, he's being very selective. He says that the world could not contain the books that would be written about the works of Christ. So what does that tell us about his text? He's being very intentional with what he selects and why he puts it in the places he does. We shouldn't just suspect that the chapters are individual and that the chapters stand alone. The context is very important. And so what have we read so far in John chapter 3? Well, in John chapter 3, we talked about how we are born again, and now that happens through the will of the Spirit. We cannot be born again apart from the Spirit. And then we saw Jesus and his disciples, or his disciples were baptizing. And then we saw John and his disciples, they were baptizing. And John sees that and he glorifies Christ. So yes, they go to him because that is the will of God. He must increase and I must decrease. He will inevitably increase. As all the people, all Jesus' bride, the people that he cleanses, the people that he sanctifies, the people that are born again in him, they go to him. And so, big scope, looking at all of John chapter 3 and even all the way back to John chapter 1, I hope that you take a look at how our text is in the context. So, John chapter 3, our text today is verses 31 through 36. We'll read this real quick and then we're going to break it apart piece by piece. Now, if you were the kind of person who loves deductive sermons, right? So essentially, I give you the main point and then we break it apart piece by piece. This sermon is for you. I usually don't preach these kinds of sermons, but here's one. So, John chapter 3, verses 31 through 33. He, comes from, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. All right, now we're going to take this text very slowly, okay? I'm going to take this text very slowly as possible because as you read there, there in those, ver- there, those six verses there, there's a lot. There's a lot and it can be confusing to us. So verse 31, Jesus is above all. Why? Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He was the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. What does it mean to say that He's above all. Is it referring to like some physical place? Is he just higher physically than us? No, as the text says, he is above all because he comes from heaven. Jesus is heavenly. He is not earthly. We've already touched on this. One thing that's got to be made clear about Jesus is that he's not just a man. 
are one of the things that is evidently clear in Scripture is that Jesus was not just the man. As we read in John chapter 1, in the beginning it was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. In other words, Jesus is eternal. In contrast, notice how verse 31 says, He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. Jesus, he stands in contrast to us, we who are of the earth and we who speak in an earthly way. And this connects to what we read before, right? That which is flesh, that which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of spirit is spirit. Remember, if we've only ever experienced our first birth, if we've only ever been born by our mother, we are of the flesh. We have a fleshly nature. Take a look at Romans real quick. Man, I am doing bad at keeping up with my <laughs> slides here. Okay, there we go. Romans. Romans chapter 5, verses 15 through 16. But the free gift, I don't really like that translation. Let me pause here. In this text, when it says free gift, the, the word for free is not there. It's just gift. Um, quite frankly, the, the, this gift of grace, if somebody had to die for it, if somebody had to die on our behalf, it's not free. It costs somebody's life. All right, so I don't like how this, text, or how this English translation, this ESV, translate it because that word free is not there. Okay, so I'm going to read it without that. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, by, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Simply put, because of Adam's sin, we have a nature sin. Now, don't misunderstand me. Don't misunderstand me. I know that some people get a little uh, queasy. Some people get a little antsy when they hear that. They think it's kind of Calvinistic, but here's the thing. I I'm not saying we bear the guilt for our father's sin. Right? We are not liable for our father's sin. We bear the guilt for our own sin. And when we are born in the flesh, we are on an inevitable track to be enslaved by sin. So when we go through our first birth, if that's all we experience ever in life, we are of the flesh, we think, in an earthly, fleshly way. To be born of the Spirit, you have to be of the Spirit. And now Jesus, if you notice in this text, I know there's a lot here, but Jesus, as the text says, he's like a new Adam. That's kind of what Romans is trying to communicate here. Jesus corrects what went wrong in the beginning. Adam was earthly, and he caused us to have this fleshly nature. But Jesus is heavenly. 
And Jesus gives us a heavenly nature. So Jesus, he's above all. Why? Oh my goodness. My slides are... I don't even know if I should use the slide thing. I should just use my Bible here. Probably would be best. Obviously, it would be best. Excuse me, I'm a little out of order here. Oh, there it is. Okay, let me back up. (laughs) There we are. Verse 32, Jesus is from heaven. Verse 32 says, He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. So Jesus, he is above all because he is from heaven, and he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Well, what has he seen and heard? It's answered by what we just read. He's from heaven, right? So Jesus, he bears witness to the things of heaven. So whatever knowledge we have pertaining to heaven, it's because he has revealed it, all right? We don't have knowledge of heaven without Jesus. Jesus is from heaven and he reveals the things of heaven. And the thing about heaven is that heaven is life. You might be confused by that, but let's go back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, in him, that is Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus, this man who, who, well, not man, he's not just the man, this person who is from heaven, in him was life. This heavenly person in him was life, and that life was the light of men. So without him, We're just in darkness. We can't really see. We are lost. We don't have life. Now, if this at all confuses you, uh, go back to the second sermon I preached in John chapter 1. That's where we cover this idea that in him was life and it was light. So I'm not going to belabor that point any longer. And hold on to that second half of verse 32. We're going to get there, I I promise you. But Jesus is above all because he's from heaven and he bears witness to the things of heaven in verse 34. Well, that doesn't seem to be right. I think I just need to flip to my... Where am I? You know what, I'm just going to switch to my... I'm not using the slides. I am not using the slides. I knew this was going to happen. It worked well last week. (laughs) It worked well last week, but this week it is not working for me. So John chapter 3, verse 34. Again, hold on to verse 32. It said, He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. So hold on to that last half there, yet no one receives his testimony. We're going to get to that. But for now, skip down to verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. He's been sent by God, and he speaks the words of God. Whatever the the Father says, the Son says. You see, the Father and the Son's will are not in conflict. They are the same. And Jesus, he actually says this in John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verses 9 through 11. The text says, Jesus says, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? 
Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus is in the Father's will. They are aligned. They're not different. They have the same will. And it's interesting that Jesus says in this text here, believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Do you want to know why you should believe that Jesus is of the Father? Well, look what he did. All the miracles, all the mighty works that he performed. He's like, if you don't believe my word, do you see what's happening around you? Unfortunately, not many did. Jesus and the Father are one. Now, in this text here, verse 34, the the second half of this is not the best translation. It says, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now, that just kind of seems like it's saying, well, generally Jesus gives the Spirit or God gives the Spirit without measure. But in this text, Jesus is the object of God giving the Spirit without measure. So, here's a question for you might need to ponder on this for a while. Do we receive the Spirit exactly like Jesus did? This is one thing I didn't really touch on in my sermon series over the Spirit, which I regret not touching on it. I should have touched on it. But do we receive the Spirit exactly like Jesus did? Because he receives that Spirit. He receives God's Spirit, according to this text, without measure. What does it say to, uh, what does it mean to say without measure? Uh, an infinite being, the, the Spirit, Jesus receives the Spirit without measure. There's, there's no limit. The, the whole thing is just dwelling in Him. How is that possible? Do we receive it like that? Well, in Galatians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, it says that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in who? In Jesus. John, 1 John, let's go there. 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Right, so there's a sense He's, he's given us of His Spirit. It doesn't say the, the, the full, the... the unmeasured, the fullness of it. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say the totality of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So when I ask, do we receive the Spirit exactly like Jesus, you can disagree with me. But the text does not seem to say we receive it exactly like Him. To be sure we receive the Spirit... And the Spirit has so much power in our life, it has the power to change our life. But Jesus is the only person to whom it says, without measure. So just think about that phrase there, without measure. The totality of of a deity, of an infinite amount of the Spirit. How does that work? I don't know, but the text says he receives it without measure measure. So Jesus, he is above all because he's sent from God, sent by God, 
and he has the fullness of God in him. And we can see that just by looking at his person. Verse 35 in John chapter 3. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Jesus, he's above all because of the Father's love. Now, I don't know what it is to love a child. After all, Michaela and I, we only have a cat right now. Uh, and he is, he, you know, he, he's, a, he's a boy cat, so he, in a sense he's our son cat, but <laughs> it's, it's not exactly like having and loving a child. So I don't know what it is to love a child, but the text says the Father, God, loves Jesus, the Son. I'm sure when you all, for those who are fathers, when you became a father, it gave you a different perspective on life, a different perspective on love. But here's the thing. Whatever love we have for for our sons or daughters, whatever we we have for our spouses, whatever we love we have for our relatives, it doesn't compare to the love of God. It doesn't compare to God's love, God the Father's love for God the Son. So take whatever love you have for your children and multiply it. I'm not sure what to multiply it by because it's not exactly clear, but one thing we know for sure is that God's love is by far greater than our love. And so think about how you, you fathers with your sons, I think about it this way. Uh, Take, for example, inheritance. Your kingdom, so to speak, is your sons. How does that apply to Jesus? Well, the text says, verse 35, He has given all things into his hand. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. All things. There's not a corner of the universe. There's not a molecule. There's not even the basic building blocks of creation that is not apart from his will. He has authority over it all. Jesus is above all because the Father loves the Son and He has given all things into His hand. But now what? How do we respond to the fact that Jesus is above all? We'll back up to verses 32 and 33. It's a little confusing, but we're going to get there. Verses 32 and 33. He bears witness to what He has seen and heard, yet no one receives His testimony. Whoever receives this testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Wait a minute. Did y'all just hear that? Is John like pulling our leg? Is John like messing with us? What do you mean by that, John? How can no one receive his testimony? And then how can you say, whoever receives this testimony? What's going on? How can no one receive it, but whoever receives it? Consider John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but the will of God. So one thing you see here in this text is that to receive him is connected it cannot be separated 
from being born again. No one receives him unless they have been born again. Right? You cannot receive him without having been born again. That is tied together. That cannot be separated. You only have received him if you have been born again, which means to be born of the Spirit. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11, it says, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Context, what did Jesus get done talking about there? Being born again. Being born of the Spirit. And he says, you do not receive our testimony. Why? Because Nicodemus has not been born again. Nicodemus thinks he got it all. He thinks he knows everything. But he misses it. He doesn't realize that he needs the Spirit. He has not been born again, thus he has not received his testimony. Verse 36. No one receives his testimony unless they have been born again. And this verse here in verse 36, it begs the question, what will your response be to the one who is above all? Verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There's a good reason that belief is tied to obedience, as you can see in this text. It says there are those who believe, and then there are those who do not obey. So belief is tied to obedience. Now, that word there for whoever does not obey is apetho. It's like active disbelief. Someone who is actively refusing to, be, to believe or to be persuaded. Now, the opposite of apetho is patho. Yeah, we see that word a lot in Scripture. That word patho means to be persuaded or convinced. And most of the time you see that word used in Scripture for whoever is patho, for whoever who is persuaded, there is immediate action tied to their persuasion. And so for those who see Christ as the one who is above all, they can't help but respond. They're persuaded and they just respond. But then there are those who actively refuse to believe. Romans 1 right, tells us that there are those who refuse to believe and give glory to God even though God is made plain to them. And God's wrath remains upon them. Next week in chapter 4, context, we're going to see someone who is persuaded, who saw Jesus as above all and couldn't help but to tell others. But for now, do you see that Christ is above all? Do you see that he's from heaven? Do you see that he bears witness of the things of heaven? Do you see that he's been sent by God? Do you see that he speaks the words of God? Do you see that he's indwelled by the fullness of God? Do you see that the Father loves the Son? Do you see that the Father has given all things into his hands? If you do, I hope you can't help but respond as we stand and sing.